All right, will you please stand with me and turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll read verses 1 through 10, and then we'll turn to our sermon text in Psalm 55. I mean 56, I'm sorry. I was thinking about last week. Psalm 56, of course. Um, but before we read from from Second uh, Corinthians, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you that we can read your word now. Please give me clarity to be able to preach it faithfully and effectively. Please give all of us um, listening ears and soft hearts to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 10. I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to Harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen. Let's turn now to Psalm 56. To the choir master... According to the dove on far-off terebinths, a meek tom of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. 
you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Amen. You may be seated. I want to start with the question, what is courage? What is courage? Um, it's, a, it's a word where we sometimes get the meaning a little bit out of focus. Sometimes people labor under the impression that to, to have courage means that you never feel afraid, which of course is not true. Uh, Many people of proven courage have often reflected that they acted, when they acted uh, very bravely in some situation, they were just as afraid as the next person. Um, It's not that they weren't afraid, it's what they did when they were afraid. Now, in the Bible, there are um, many different ways the Lord talks about fear very common theme in scripture because it's a very common theme in human experience, right? Um, and it's, it's commonly said that the most often repeated command in the Bible is, do not be afraid or fear not. And uh, this can be a little bit confusing sometimes because if we think of fear as merely a feeling, merely an experience, well, then how, how can I obey that command? How can I just decide not to be afraid? Uh, we don't have direct control over our experiences of life like that. Just turn them on or off like, like flipping a switch. Wouldn't it be nice if we could, right? Um, there's a funny Bob Newhart sketch. They would talk about this in seminary as an example of how not to do like pastoral counseling. Where he's, he's playing a therapist and, and uh, a woman comes to him with this phobia she's been experiencing and he says, I have two words for you. I want you to write these down, and any time you experience this phobia, I want you to repeat them to yourself. And the words are, stop it. Uh, it goes on. It's really funny. But anyway, um, it's funny because it's obviously absurd, because it's terrible advice. We can't just stop it that way. And, of course, when God says, do not be afraid or fear not, that's not what he means. Either he's not saying just stop it. Don't don't feel that anymore. Stop feeling that way. What he's doing is he's speaking to a different aspect of fear. When you feel afraid, when you face the very real and scary threats of life, how are you going to respond? What are you going to believe? What choices are you going to make? What are you going to dwell on, fill your mind and soul with when you are afraid? And that's what Psalm 56 is about. So in many other places, God does say, do not be afraid, fear not. 
Psalm 56 is complementary. Read it together with those other passages. We want to just soak in the different approach he takes here as he inspires David to say, when I am afraid. When I am afraid. And isn't it wonderful, those, those two ways that go together, that God addresses our fears in his word. Those two dimensions giving us this full picture of what it means to live a godly life in a scary world. So let's look at this psalm in three parts tonight. First is, when I am afraid, verses 1 through 7. The second part will be, no wasted tears, verses 8 through 11. And then third will be, the light of life, verses 12 to 13. So when I am afraid, no wasted tears, and the light of life. Now, the heading of this psalm says that it's related to the time in David's life uh, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. And this is probably referring to 1 Samuel 21, when David uh, has just run away from Saul, uh, but he really doesn't have anywhere to run to. There's nowhere that's really safe for him. And you can tell just how desperate things have gotten for David by the fact that he tries to seek basically political asylum, more or less, with the Philistines of all people. Goliath, of course, was a Philistine, right? So think, was this a good idea? Um, I guess he's operating under the principle there that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, except that that's not how things work out because he gets to Gath, the Philistine capital, and and the people are thinking, wait a second, isn't this the guy that killed Goliath? And they, they say, is not this David the king of the land? And they not sing to one another of him in dances. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousand, ten thousands of what? Of Philistines, right? And so David realizes he's going to be no safer there than he was with Saul, and he, he only escapes by uh, faking that he's out of his mind. Um, so the Philistine king just kind of gets annoyed with him and sends him back to Judah instead of killing him. It's kind of the man without a country situation. I mean, David has a country. In fact, he's the rightful king of that country. Uh, But at this point in his life, he's being treated as though he belongs nowhere. Everybody wants to kill him. Nowhere is safe. Everywhere his life is in danger. And so he's isolated. He's exhausted. He's totally vulnerable and exposed to danger. And out of that situation, he cries out, be gracious to me, O God. It's interesting. That's actually the exact same way that Psalm 51 begins. Um, be gracious. It's a, the Hebrew. I mean, sorry, the English translation is different, uh, but the Hebrew is the same. Be gracious to me, O God. Um, Psalm 51, it says, be merciful, but it's the same Hebrew word. Be gracious to me. Um, show me favor, O God. This is a good reminder that for both our sin, Psalm 51 is a, is a penitential psalm, right? Confessing sin to God. For both our sin and for our suffering both for our moral failure and for our fears, both. The word of God points us in exactly the same direction. The solution is the same. Um, the, the, what we need is the same thing. It is the grace, the kindness, the undeserved favor of God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, whether what we need is forgiveness and atonement or whether what we need is protection, comfort, Um, In this case, he says, be gracious to me, O God, for 
Man tramples on me. All day long, an attacker oppresses me. It is relentless all day long, right? This never lets up. It won't go away. He never gets a rest. It's not like he gets to take a break or go on vacation from being hunted by Saul. You take a break and you get killed, right? My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. And remember, David's getting it from all sides. It's not just Saul over here. It's the Philistines over here as well. And David is stuck in the middle. In verses 5 and 6, Uh, you get an even deeper insight into just how malicious and personal these attacks are. Remember the close relationship um, that David had with Saul, married to his daughter, uh, best friends with his son, Jonathan. And, and, And yet, it says all of Saul's thoughts are against him for evil. They they stir up strife, it says. They lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. And so it's moved beyond just the the kind of hot-blooded momentary outbursts that Saul had earlier on to this this plotting and scheming, this settled hatred and this cold-blooded determination to take David's life. In 1 Samuel 20, he tells Jonathan, there is but a step between me and death. All this is based on Saul's completely unfounded suspicion of David. This willful misconstrual of David's words and actions. Um, Notice the the footnote on the first line of verse 5, where it says, All day long they enter my cause. The footnote says they twist my words. Could be another translation there. You've probably known what it's like for someone to twist your words to misrepresent you, to make it seem to others that you said one thing when really that's not what you meant at all. And how devastating that can be, right? You, it can make you feel so helpless because how do, how do you defend yourself against that? So I guess we could ask the question at this point, was David right to be afraid of Saul and of the Philistines? Was it right for David to be afraid of Saul and the Philistines? And you might say, well, I mean, the Bible says don't be afraid. It says fear not. So maybe that was wrong. In fact, maybe, maybe he shouldn't even run away from Saul. Maybe he should have just let go and let God, as, as people like to say. Maybe he should have just um, stayed there at Saul's court and just trusted, just trusted God to sort everything out to protect him there. Just don't be afraid, David. Just stop it right? Uh, Well, no, that is obviously absurd. That would not have been a righteous way for David to respond to these threats against his life. And that's not at all the evaluation that the Bible gives us of David's actions in 1 Samuel or in the Psalms. David's fear of Saul that led to him fleeing from his life, that was the right response to Saul's sinful and violent aggression against him. And so there's this sense where fear is the normal, healthy, even righteous response to scary things, right? It's actually how God made us. It keeps us alive. Fear is what keeps you away from the edge of a cliff. Fear is the reason that you don't walk into that patch of poison ivy, right? This is is a healthy thing. Just like there is a healthy, righteous kind of anger, although so much of our anger is expressed sinfully and mixed with our sinfulness, right? Well, it's the same thing with fear. There's a healthy, righteous kind of fear, even though so often our fear is sinful 
or mixed with our sinfulness. I think that analogy with anger really can help us to think about the Bible's teaching on fear. So in this psalm, then, fear for David um, is, is a given. It's a given because he is surrounded by actually scary things. This is not imaginary fear for him. It's not like he's just built this up in his mind. These are scary people. His life is really hanging by a thread. And, and that is why verses 3 and 4 are so important for us to hear in terms of a, a believing, faithful response to fear. As David says, when I am afraid. When I am afraid, what am I going to do? And his answer is, I'm going to put my trust in you. I love that way of phrasing it. Trust, this is, we talked about, we touched on this a little bit this morning, that uh, faith is not just a matter of accepting certain facts as true, right? David is talking here about putting something somewhere. You, you take your money and you go and you put it in the bank, right? You deposit it. Hundreds, maybe maybe thousands of dollars, um, trusting that that bank is reliable, and that it's trustworthy, that it is not going to let you down, that money's going to be there when you go to get it back out. You put it somewhere. That's what trust is like. So trusting God is, is putting ourselves in his hands, willingly, unreservedly, In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. And then what's the consequence? I shall not be afraid. Now, isn't that striking? Verse 3, when I am afraid. Verse 4, I shall not be afraid. So, kind of adding a little ellipse there in the middle, you could just read it as, when I am afraid, dot, 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 I shall not be afraid. When I encounter these scary things of life that are really threatening me in really serious ways, and I feel that natural response of fear that God gave me to to prompt me, to urge me to move to safety, to seek refuge, I could choose to feed that fear to take that fear and put it at the center of my life, to have that fear define me, to kind of blow on it, to fan the flame and see it grow bigger and bigger until it takes over, and that's my main way of looking at life. That's one way to respond to that fear. Or I could say, no, I'm going to make a different choice. Instead, in faith and obedience, I am going to put my trust in God. I'm going to worship him. Notice how key worship is here. Worshiping God is one of the things that reorients David to see him and to see himself and to see the world the way things really are, to see things in proper perspective. Worship is his word I praise, verse 4, is going to direct me, David's saying, to focus on God himself. It's going to lead me to focus on the bigness of God, right? God is going to loom so much larger in my vision that next to him, my fears are going to begin to appear much smaller by comparison. 
Worship is key. The way the Lord wants to answer our fears. And it leads us to ask the question, when we get that bigger view of God, then we say, wait a second. Wait a second, what can flesh do to me, after all, if this is what God is like? So in other words, what what David's doing is he's recognizing that even though Saul and the Philistines are very powerful, very uh, truly fearful, actually legitimately scary, see, when he orients himself in worship, and he gets his perspective straight with God at the center and God in a proper point of view, then he can see that their power is strictly limited, right? They seem, in the moment of danger, they seem all-powerful. It seems like there's nothing they can't do to him. But actually, they are not at all. There's only one who is all-powerful. And because there is only one who is all-powerful, that means that the power of every other threat to your life and well-being is strictly limited by the sovereign authority and power of your God. This is why Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 12, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. It's that do-your-worst kind of mentality. But I will warn you whom to fear, Jesus goes on. Fear him, who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. It's that whole idea of getting our perspective straightened out so that God seems bigger and our other fears appear then relatively smaller. Okay, um... It's interesting, in light of this psalm, it's interesting that in that very same passage in Luke 12, Jesus goes on immediately in the next verse to talk about something else, which is the intimate understanding that God has of the tiniest details of our lives. And he, and he gives that as yet another comfort for us to help us not to be afraid. Very much like Psalm 56 goes on, almost to the point that I wonder if maybe Jesus had this psalm in the back of his mind as he was giving that teaching in Luke 12. Um, Jesus says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten by before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. It's funny, I, I don't think that I had given any preview of, this, of tonight's sermon, but at lunch, one of my kids asked me, Daddy, how long would it take you to count all of your hair? (laughs) And I was thinking about this verse. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows that number, even though I I, I had said, I don't know. (laughs) I'm sure it would take a long time. And then Jesus goes on. He says, fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. I think you can hear there in Jesus' voice the, the comfort, the encouragement there. Um, we have to understand that when Jesus says, fear not, which he says on many occasions, it's not this, um, this harsh rule that he's giving to his disciples with this mean face. Just, just stop it. Stop being afraid. Stop feeling that way. That's bad. No. When he says that, he is saying that not as this harsh rule. He's saying it as words of encouragement. It is that very um, 
exhortation of Jesus, that really encouragement of Jesus that is meant itself to relieve our fears. And how is it to do that? It's, it's by teaching us something about God. It's by reminding us of who he is, reminding us of what he's like. This is so important to the Bible's teaching on fear that the ultimate answer to fear is a bigger and clearer view of God. Not, not some kind of impersonal theoretical theology that's far removed for, from us up in the sky, but a practical knowledge of God. Okay, so, so you believe that God is omniscient. Great, that's good. You believe that God is all-knowing. But you have to ask then, what does that mean for you? And that's what Jesus is getting at in Luke 12. What does that mean for you that God is all-knowing, that he knows everything about you? What does that mean for you, when you're, particularly when you're facing your biggest fears, when you're facing the scariest parts of life? It means, beloved, if God knows all things... That means that God knows all your fears. He knows all your pain. He knows all of your feelings of helplessness. He knows all of your sorrow, even to the very minutest detail. He knows it as nobody else knows it, not even your closest friend, family member, spouse. He knows it better than you know yourself. He understands things that you can't even understand about your own experience. And this is why verse 8 is, to me personally, one of the most precious, if not the most precious verse in the whole book of Psalms. And he says, You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your begin with, you can see in verse, in the first line, um, the footnote, someone would, uh, some, some would want to translate that, the end of that first line as wanderings. You have kept count of my wanderings. And that might actually be, fit the context a little better. You can think about this time in David's life. David did a lot of wandering from place to place, of course, as he tried to find a safe uh, spot to hide from Saul. Um, but let me reassure you that tossings really resonates with you. Um, it is also relevant here. If you ever ever struggled with sleepless nights, if you've ever struggled with just that experience of tossing and turning, whether it's for a medical reason, like a sleep disorder, or just because you were so overwhelmed by life, by your spinning and turning thoughts that would not let you rest, Tossings. And so I want to assure you that even if even if the better translation is in the footnote here, this this verse and all that it is teaching us surely applies to that experience of sleeplessness too. Because if the Lord know, knew every detail of David's wanderings and kept track of every one of his tears, then surely He also knows every toss and turn of every sleepless night that David spent in the wild and that you have spent in your bed. Or out of it. But what I love best about this section is that next line where he says, Put my tears in your bottle. It's this word picture of God having a container where he, he catches and he keeps, he stores every individual tear that falls from David's face. 
What's the implication? It's not that God just has this as a, as a curiosity to put on a shelf. Like, Here, David's tears. We can look at it when we get to heaven or something like that. No, that's not the point. The point is not one of those tears has gone to waste. Not one of them has gone to waste. Not one of them is ignored. Not one of them has gone unnoticed. There's not one sob that has not been heard by God. Ask if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it. Does it make a sound? And you might wonder if Am I the only person who knows about this experience of sorrow? Nobody else really understands what I'm going through. Am I just unheard? And beloved, that's never the case. Because the Lord always hears. The Lord always sees. There's never a truly meaningless or senseless moment of agony or sorrow. Even though it may very well be that we will never have the same insight that the Lord has into the meaning, uh, that that sense of it all, at least on this side of glory. Um, The alternative, of course, the way many people think of life is that when we suffer, when we weep, we're just screaming into the void, as some people would put it. This uncaring, deaf, and silent nothingness that's going to send nothing back to us. But for the people of God, that is never our fate. Never. The Lord is showing you in this psalm that you are heard, that you are seen, that every milliliter of your sorrow is known and it's accounted for. None of it is meaningless. None of it has gone to waste. None of it ever will. So earlier we looking at the Heidelberg Catechism, that first answer. I love where it says he also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. And in fact, all things must work together for my salvation. That's good news. It's because you belong to Jesus Christ. It's because you're not your own, but you belong to him. That's why you can receive this assurance that your suffering matters. And it matters to him. And that it is measured and it is limited by his mercy his grace. And you can also have confidence, this psalm also says, that, that he's a just judge who will, in fact, correct the gross imbalances and the unfairness of the unjust suffering that you've experienced at the hands of others, which I know there's much represented here. Verse 7, for their crime, will they escape? And the answer is no. No, they will not escape for their crime. The Lord is going to cast down the peoples in his wrath. Verse 9, my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. Why? Because I know this, that God is for me. That God is for me. And of course, that should call to mind for us is what Paul, how Paul develops this, that if God is for us, Romans 8, then who can be against us, right? Christ the same Christ that died for us, the same Christ who's our high priest, well, he's also our king, right? He's our king who's going to defend us, who's going to fight for us, who's going to restrain and conquer our enemies, who's going to render just judgment, who's going to set things to rights, 
everything that is wrong now. Well, we come finally to verses 12 and 13, where David um, looks forward to when he's going to respond in worship and thanksgiving to God's deliverance once his prayers are answered. Uh, Notice, by the way, we were talking about earlier, David's response to his fear both begins and ends in worship. It's in God whose word I praise already. It is in that God that I already worship that I'm going to place my trust. I'm not going to wait to worship God until after he's delivered me. I trust him to deliver me because of who he is. and I'm going to worship him for that now, for all of his goodness and his power. I'm going to trust him to be true to his word and to bring that goodness and power to bear for me. That's the God who's going to deliver my soul from death and keep my feet from falling so that I can walk before God in the light of life. And then I'm going to worship again. He just moves from worship to worship. He worships God before he's delivered because he trusts in God's character and he worships God after he's delivered because he sees the answer to all those promises that he's trusted. Um, This caused me to think about what Hebrews 12 says regarding the Lord Jesus. It says that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And it says he was heard. He was heard. Now, Jesus, in fact, did pass through death. It's not heard where, to the point where he didn't have to die for us. He did. It was something even better. It was the resurrection on the other side of death. It was that great answer to the loud cries and tears of Christ. David's experience in this psalm is it's not just a model. We've talked about it a lot as kind of a, a, a picture for us, a model for us of how to deal with fear. And it is functions well as that. But only if we understand it in the bigger picture of the Bible. That this experience of David is a picture of a greater fulfillment that's going to come later in the life of Jesus. Jesus, who was, of course, surrounded by his enemies, right? Inescapably surrounded. Jesus, whose words were twisted. They twisted Jesus' words, definitely. Think of all the people plotting and conspiring against him. And in the end, it's really because of Jesus' tears. Not just his tears, but his drops of, of blood shed on the cross. It's through him. That's why you and I can pray this prayer. It's because we belong to Jesus. It's because we're forgiven and accepted through Jesus. Because God is for us in our union with Jesus. That is why we can pray this way. That is why when we are afraid, we can put our trust in God. And we can learn by the Spirit of Christ not to fear because we have that confidence that God is for me. In Christ. Without Jesus, well, this, this psalm wouldn't really do us any good. It would be like David. be more like David. Well, that's not going to really help us. How can I have any confidence that God is for me? I'm not David. It's because you're in Christ. Without Jesus, we'd have nothing left except fear. Fear of the people around us. Fear of the perils of, of life in a dangerous world. Fear of ourselves and our own failures, our own weaknesses, our own sin. And most of all, fear of the wrath of God at the end of it all and the curse of hell. That's apart from Jesus. But you see, because of Jesus, in Christ, we are freed 
from every single one of those fears. The fears of other people. The fears of life in a dangerous world. The fear of yourself and your own weaknesses and failures and sin. You're freed from that fear and you are welcomed in to the comfort and the peace of the family of God where you are known and you are loved and you are treasured and you are beloved, forgiven. That place where none of your tears are ever wasted and none of your sorrows are ever meaningless. Why? Because Jesus was delivered from death for you. His mighty resurrection from the dead. And that's why you and I can now embrace with joy, with hope, what this psalm is expressing to us. That's why, that we, that's why we too can, in Christ, can expect to walk before God in the light of life. So just to wrap up, I want to remind us, it's, it's so good to know that the Bible doesn't merely command you, it's this rule, not to be afraid. It says fear not for a reason. And that is a real command. It is, it is teaching you something, a responsibility. But also, it shows you what to do when you are afraid. When you are afraid. And it's through this psalm because of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your hearts, that you can learn to say, when I am afraid, I shall not be afraid. When I am afraid, I shall not be afraid. Why? Because I have put my trust in the God, the God that I'm worshiping even at this moment tonight. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you know even better than we do that this world is a dangerous, perilous place, full of many things to be afraid of. And Lord, we don't even know the half of it. If you're all-knowing, Lord, you know of all kinds of dangers and threats to our life that we're not even aware of. And if we were, Lord, then how could we even keep our heads above water instead of just floundering in the fear that would just consume us if we could see everything that you see about the danger of life? Lord, even the fear we do experience, the threats that we do see can be so crippling. Lord, we're so thankful for this psalm, though, that teaches us what to do when we are afraid. We pray that you would build this more and more into our lives and hearts so that when we are afraid, you would teach us to not be afraid. Because of all that you are, all that you have done for us in Christ. Lord, Keep that count, we pray, of all of our tears. Let not one of them go to waste. And Lord, reassure each one of your children here tonight that none of their tears are wasted. None of their sorrows are unnoticed. Because you know it all. And in the midst of it all, you're comforting us and preparing for us the great comfort and resolution that you have in store. We trust you. We ask you to help us to keep trusting you as we go from here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.